0: Good morning. <laughs> All right. Well, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Today's message is entitled, Why I Believe in the Resurrection. If you've been with us, you know we've been going through the Gospel of John uh, for several months now, uh, looking at the life of Christ, life of Jesus. And over the last few weeks, we saw how Jesus was betrayed, and then tried, and then crucified. And last week, Pastor Lee mentioned how at least one man's life was changed as Jesus suffered on the cross. One of the two men who were crucified on either side of him. We read in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 39, where it says, Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed Jesus, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This brief little mention that Lee gave us yesterday, or last week, of this passage really stood out to me because I thought about how life can't really get much worse than hanging on a cross, right? You can't get much worse than that. And if we look around at our world today, we see suffering, we see death, we see our nation divided, and not just politically. We see our civil liberties being taken away. We even see our economy on life support. And that's just the stuff that we know about, right? If there's one thing we know about tomorrow, it's to expect the unexpected, right? Because so many things are just crazy right now. And yet, if you have trusted in Jesus, if you're a Christian, then no matter how awful your life becomes or how awful this world becomes, at least we will spend eternity with Him. We'll be with Him in paradise because of His work on the cross, right? Well, at least that's what the Bible tells us, right? You see, if Jesus rose from the dead, then we can trust His promise of everlasting life. But if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we have no hope of heaven. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14... It says, And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Skip over to verse 17, and it says, And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also, those who have fallen asleep, or those Christians who have died, have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. You see, Paul understood that Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus. And so, I wanted to do something a little different today. Today, I'm going to read through our our passage, John chapter 20, but I'm going to give just a little bit of commentary, and I'm going to spend most of our time together looking at why I believe in the resurrection. If I can get my mic to stay, stay on there. So, go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 20, in verses 1 through 29, we read about the resurrection of Jesus. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and said to them, "'They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb.'" And we do not know where they have laid him. Now, John, the disciple, he's writing this gospel, and he's calling himself the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And it's kind of interesting how he describes himself in these next few verses. Verse 3, Peter therefore went out, and the other disciple, John, and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together. But the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. That's important. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw... And believed hmm so John here wants us to know that he not only is faster than Peter but when he went into the tomb he believed Peter just saw but John believed I like that okay I like that because it's just funny and if Peter were writing the gospel I think he might say the other disciple who walked on water right that's how Peter might describe himself anyways back to verse 9 For as yet they did not know the scripture, that Jesus must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. And I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. So don't miss that little phrase there that the disciples were still hiding out because they were afraid of the Jews. So look at verse 20. When Jesus had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, hold right there for me for just a moment. And if you have your note sheets, go and pull that out because this is your first fill in the blank. You see, in this verse, Jesus is not telling the disciples to provide forgiveness, but to proclaim forgiveness, to proclaim the gospel. You see, the disciples and all believers, we are ambassadors for Christ. We represent him. So when somebody repents and believes in Jesus as their Savior, we have the awesome privilege of declaring their sins forgiven. Not because we did anything. Not because they were worthy enough. But it's just because of God's grace. But we need to tell them what God has done for them. And so when they have believed in Christ, we say, your sins are forgiven. I'm not forgiving your sins. I'm just the messenger here. Your sins are forgiven, because Jesus did the work. So too, when somebody has not yet become a Christian, we have the responsibility of declaring their sins not forgiven until they turn to Jesus. That's what he's talking about there. So look back at verse 24. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. see what happens when you miss church. Okay, might be a big one. So Thomas wasn't there. He didn't get to see it. But all the other disciples were there, and they got to see his hands and see his side, and they told Thomas, Tommy, you missed out, man. Jesus is alive. But verse 25, the other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. And so he, Thomas, said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails... And put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands, and reach your hand here, and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. I love this part because it shows us that it is normal to struggle with doubt. And that's your next fill in the blank. It is normal to struggle with doubt. When Thomas doubted, Jesus didn't say, Fine, Thomas, you go hang out with Judas. I didn't like you anyways. No, Jesus came and he showed himself to Thomas and he said, Look, touch, feel, see that I am risen, that I am here. I think Thomas had a heart similar to the man in Mark chapter 9, verse 24, where it says, Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I think Thomas wanted to believe, but he couldn't. And the other disciples, they got to see and touch already and know. And Thomas said, I want to believe, but I I can't. I don't want to get my hopes up for nothing. But then once Thomas was able to see and touch Jesus himself, he believed. Yet, even then, I'm sure there came a time in Thomas' life, maybe months or years down the road, when life was really difficult, when he was going through some great suffering, where he suddenly struggled with doubt again and said, Did I see the risen Lord? Or was that all just a dream? Because this life is not really going how I thought it would today. I didn't really expect to be here, to experience this, to have this suffering or loss in my life. And in that moment, I think Thomas would have to recall No, I know that was real. It doesn't feel like it right now, but I I know that was real. And I need to stand on what I know. See, it's okay to doubt. And when we doubt, we should look at the evidence. But there comes a time where you must take that final step by faith. Because every single time that we doubt, Jesus is not going to reappear and say, touch my hands, put your hand in my side. Don't be unbelieving, but believing. As, as nice as that might sound, he's not going to do that. But we can look at the evidence, and it'll take us up to that last point where we can make that final step by faith. And so we must trust where the evidence leads and have faith even though we cannot see or know everything. Look at verse 29 with me. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. How do we believe without seeing? Well, by faith. We don't have the privilege of witnessing the risen Jesus with our own eyes. So we must believe by faith, trusting that Jesus rose again and is alive in heaven today, despite the fact that we cannot see him. Some in the world today would call that blind faith. But blind faith is believing despite a lack of evidence. So today I want to look at the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus together with you. So the next section in your note sheet, it's entitled The Historical Facts About Jesus. We're going to look at that now. We don't have time today to get into the reliability of the New Testament, But we briefly touched on that last week as Pastor Lee showed us the 28 prophecies that were fulfilled just during the time that Jesus was on the cross. Fulfilled prophecy is a huge um, support for the reliability of the New Testament. Now, consider this. Even if somehow all of our Bibles were destroyed and lost, we no longer had the Word of God. The New Testament was quoted over 36,000 times by the church fathers, the Christians within 200 years of the time of Jesus. The entire New Testament, except for 11 verses, can be reconstructed just from the quotations of the early church fathers. Isn't that crazy? They must have talked about the New Testament a lot as they wrote letters back and forth, and they posted on Facebook and all those crazy things. And so we can reconstruct the New Testament just from their quotations. But even beyond the church fathers, we have non-Christian sources that talk about Jesus. Flavius Josephus was a Jewish historian who lived about the year 37 to 100 A.D. So right after the life of Christ, he was a historian, a Jewish historian. And he recorded many events that happened just before his life and during his life. Josephus, who was not a Christian, he wrote, At this time, the time of Pilate, there was a wise man who was called Jesus. His conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship they reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. That's pretty remarkable. Coming from a first century historian in the Roman Empire who was not himself a Christian. And yet he says all of that about Jesus. Now, two men... Named Norman Geisler and Frank Turek, they wrote a book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And they go through and look at some different reasons and evidences that point to Christ. And after they quote Josephus themselves in their book, they add this, and I'm going to quote them. They said, just how many non Christian sources are there that mention Jesus? Including Josephus, there are ten known non Christian writers who mentioned Jesus within 150 years of his life. By contrast, over the same 150 years, there are nine non-Christian sources who mention Tiberius Caesar, the Roman emperor at the time of Jesus. So, discounting all the Christian sources, Jesus is actually mentioned by one more source than the Roman emperor himself. If you include the Christian sources, authors mentioning Jesus outnumber those mentioning Tiberius 43 to 1. Pretty remarkable that all these people talk about Jesus. For 2,000 years ago, that's a lot of evidence. And so again, if we somehow lost all of our Bibles, and even beyond that, if we somehow lost all of the writings of the church fathers so that we only had these ten surviving non-Christian sources, here is what we would still know about Jesus. Jesus lived during the time of Tiberius Caesar. He lived a virtuous life. He was a a wonder worker. He had a brother named James. He was acclaimed to be the Messiah. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified on the eve of the Jewish Passover. Darkness and an earthquake occurred when he died. His disciples believed he rose from the dead. His disciples were willing to die for their belief. Christianity spread rapidly as far as Rome. And his disciples denied the Roman gods and worshipped Jesus as God. And again, we learn all 12 of those things from non-Christian sources from the 1st and 2nd century. That's quite a bit. That's quite a bit to know about Christ. And this brings us to the first of our theories to disprove the resurrection. You see, skeptics have come up with different theories of maybe why the tomb was empty or maybe why people believed what they did, of why Christianity began in the first place. Because they've rejected what the Bible says and so they've got to come up with another reason why. And so here's the first theory Some say Jesus or his miracles and resurrection was a myth. He was just a myth. Some critics say that Jesus never existed, or if he did exist, all the miracles are just myths and legends that turned into beliefs over time, which led to the Christian faith being born. However, there are several problems with this theory, and we're going to look at two. First of all, if Jesus or his life had become mystified, why do at least 10 outside sources outside of the Bible talk about him and the miracles and the supposed resurrection? Why? Why would we have those outside sources that line up with the New Testament if all of this was just a myth? It doesn't make sense. Second, it's a historical fact that Christianity started in Jerusalem and that it spread rapidly through the Roman Empire. For legends to arise, there needs to be a significant amount of time to allow for the facts and the details to become obscured. But there wasn't a time gap between Jesus' death and the birth of Christianity. Not only that, but how would this legend begin in Jerusalem? the very city in which all the facts could be known or disproved, right? If I tried to tell you that the donut shop, if you said a secret word, they would give you a donut as giant as your car, right? You would just go to the donut shop and say the secret word and see if it's real, right? But if I was in Texas or South Africa or somewhere else and I told you this, you might be like, California's amazing, right? I need to go. But because we're here, we would just go and verify and say, well, they're delicious. I'd have to buy a lot of them to equal the car-sized donut, right? And so here, if Jesus' resurrection was a myth, it would have had much better traction starting off far away from the place where all the eyewitnesses saw what really happened or didn't happen. Let's look at another theory critics offer. Some say that Jesus' body... Was stolen. Jesus' body was stolen. After Jesus' burial, we read in Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 62, it says, On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, so that the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have your guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now, a couple interesting things here. How ironic is it that the chief priests and Pharisees knew that Jesus said he would rise again in three days, and the disciples are left confused and depressed? Boy, can you relate to the disciples? Sometimes you just want to punch yourself, right? Now, also, how ironic that the enemies of Jesus end up validating the resurrection because they put guards at the tomb. I love it. We pick up the story after the resurrection in Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 11. It says, Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. Uh, we, We lost him. You lost a dead guy? Yeah, we can't find him. Verse 12. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Now, a Roman guard, if they let their prisoner escape, then whatever punishment was for that prisoner would now be on the Roman guard and their families. Now imagine how excited the guards were when they found out that their guard duty was a dead guy. Oh, this is going to be easy. Great. And then imagine their terror when they realized that their dead guy escaped. They're freaking out. And so that's why the chief priests tell them, look, if Pilate hears that you guys lost your dead prisoner, you know, we'll take care of it. We'll protect you. But tell everybody that the disciples came while you were sleeping and stole Jesus' body. Do you see a, a big problem here? I only know what happens when I'm awake. I don't know what happens while I'm sleeping. So how would they know the disciples came and stole Jesus' body we were sleeping? I don't, I don't think that lines up. And so they bribed you know, them to, to, to proclaim that story. Now, the only person that I know who sleeps with his eyes open is Gandalf the White, and he wasn't there. So nobody else can know what's going on while you're sleeping. The second issue with the they stole the body theory is even if the disciples somehow managed to overpower the guards and steal Jesus' body, why would they? Remember, they were hiding, afraid of the Jews. They fled the night he was arrested. Why would they suddenly come fighting to steal a dead body and then do what with it? Some believe that either they stole the body and or then lied about the resurrection so that they could gain profit by starting a new religion, right? We all know that's a great business to be in these days, right? And so surely the disciples just made this stuff up so that they could become very profitable. So let's see the things that the disciples gained Through their deceit. Church history tells us that Matthew was slain with the sword in Ethiopia. Mark was dragged through the streets until he died in Alexandria. Luke was hung in the land of Greece. John was tortured and banished in the island of Patmos, to the island of Patmos. James, the brother of John, was beheaded in Jerusalem. Paul, after a variety of tortures and imprisonments, was finally beheaded in Rome, and we could go on. Every single disciple suffered greatly because they clung to their belief that they had seen the physically resurrected Jesus. What would they have gained from a lie? Suffering? Death? That's not why I lie, right? When I'm tempted to lie, it's because it's going to make my life better. Now, it's true, just because they died for their faith does not necessarily mean the resurrection is true. But it does mean that they believed it was true, right? Suicide bombers die for what they believe to be true. But the difference is a suicide bomber is believing something based on somebody else's testimony. What's different here is the disciples died for what they believed based on their own testimony. So again... They either believed it or they didn't. But if they didn't believe it, then why would they die for a lie? It doesn't make sense. Let's look at the next theory. Some say that they went to the wrong tomb. Went to the wrong tomb. Some critics believe that in all the emotion, the women accidentally went to the wrong tomb, which happens to be empty, and so they thought Jesus had resurrected so they ran to tell the disciples, and in their excitement and confusion, they too went to the wrong tomb. But there are two big problems with this theory. First of all, if you were one of the chief priests who went through all the trouble to get Jesus crucified and killed, the first thing you're going to do when you hear the claim that he's resurrected is you're going to go to the correct tomb, and you're going to open it, and you're going to hold up Jesus' dead arm and say, look, he's still dead. These lies die now. Right? The second problem... Oh, and, and by the way, it's silly to think that such an important burial was suddenly followed by group amnesia. That wouldn't follow. The second issue with this, this empty tomb is the wrong tomb is that this theory only provides an idea of how the tomb itself was empty But it has nothing to say about the 500 witnesses that claimed to have seen the resurrected Jesus during the 40 days after his death. And that leads us to the next theory. Some say that the disciples experienced a mass hallucination, it was a mass hallucination. They say the early Christians, they so desperately wanted Jesus to resurrect that they willed it into hallucination. And they had dreams and visions that they saw him and touched him and ate with him, but it wasn't, all, it wasn't real. Again, I want to look at two issues with this theory. First, the disciples were shocked when Jesus resurrected. Right? When Mary came and told them, they said, no, I don't think so. I mean, we'll go look at the tomb, but I don't understand. You know, that doesn't make sense indicating they were far from the supposed expectation and longing to see the resurrected Christ. Second, groups of people all hallucinating the same thing? I've never heard of that before. When you wake up from a sleepover, nobody says, boy, wasn't that the best dream we had last night? You might dream, but it's not the same dream as everybody else, right? Now, there is such a thing as mass hallucination, right? That's called a pot party. But it's not always the same drug trip for everybody, right? Finally, our last theory. Some say that Jesus didn't really die. Jesus didn't really die. He was like Captain America. I could do this all day, right? He just keeps going. Nothing can keep him down. Well, let's look at that. They call it the swoon theory, that perhaps Jesus, after he was scourged by the Roman whip, which that alone would often kill the victim. And then after Jesus was beaten, and then after he was crucified, he passed out on the cross. And they thought he was dead, and so they buried him. And a few days later, Jesus came to, and the disciples thought he rose from the dead. Three quick issues with this. First of all, Rome knew how to kill. They were professionals. They knew what they were doing. Second, what would Jesus have done when he woke up in the tomb? Did he somehow roll the stone away all by himself in that horrific state that he was in? And then what did he do? Fight off the Roman guards? After being scourged and crucified, his body's been ripped open. During a Roman scourging, it was not uncommon for a rib to fly off because that's how deep the wounds were. Jesus was in no shape to do anything but lay there and bleed to death if he did somehow survive all of that. And I'm not even going to mention the spear piercing him in the side. Third, how would any of the disciples look upon that bloodied and broken Jesus, look upon his body and think that he was the conqueror over death and the grave? They would say, well, you may be alive, but you're certainly not risen. Let's get you to a doctor, right? None of these theories explain all the evidence. The empty tomb, the disciples' change of heart and faith, the supposed actual appearances of the risen Jesus, and the birth of Christianity in the very place of Jesus' death and burial. Your next fill-in-the-blank In light of all the positive evidence for the resurrection, skeptics must offer positive first-century evidence for their alternative views. It's okay to think about what really happened. It's okay to question, but it should line up with the evidence. We can't just come up with a theory and not look at the evidence. Based on this first-century evidence, My best explanation is that Jesus really did rise again. And our faith is not blind faith, but reasonable faith. Because we're not just looking at what the Bible says, we're looking at the evidence. Our faith is reasonable. Unfortunately, despite the evidence, there is still one major reason why many reject the resurrection of Jesus today. We read about it in John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Jesus is speaking here and he says, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. You see, if we accept the resurrection of Jesus then we are accepting the truth that there is a God to whom we are accountable. That doesn't sit too well with humans who want to be their own God, who don't like being told what they can and cannot do. Therefore, many critics today say things like, it's preposterous for the God of the universe to demand we believe in Him with what little evidence we have. I understand where they're coming from. And yet, God doesn't ask us if we agree with his methods. God does not say, if it's okay with you and you think it's fair of me to ask, do you think maybe you could please believe in me? He doesn't give us that opportunity. He simply tells us in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. He doesn't ask you your opinion. He doesn't ask you if you like the way that He did things. But He does tell you that He loves you and that He wants you to be there in heaven with Him. Let's close with the last few verses of John chapter 20. Our main text from today Verses 30 and 31, John's writing here and he says, And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John did not write this gospel for it to be a collection of nice stories. John wrote so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and so that you and I might have life, eternal life, if we've asked Jesus to be our Savior. We may not be hanging on a cross right now, but we may still be suffering. We may still be going through hardship. We may still be looking around and overwhelmed with all that is going on in our town or nation or world or family or whatever. And yet Jesus wants to remind you in John 16:33, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And it's because Jesus rose again. We have the promise to be with him in paradise forever. If you've not yet given your life to Jesus, I encourage you to look at the evidence. I don't encourage you to have blind faith, but look at the evidence. Be like Thomas, who would genuinely say, Lord, I want to believe. Help me believe. Help me to understand the truth and give an honest look at the evidence. But you can only believe in him through faith. Evidence can only lead us to Jesus. Only by faith can we finally accept him. It's not a blind faith, but it is still faith. Believing what we cannot see, but basing it on evidence. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you loved us enough to come and suffer and die on the cross in our place, to pay for the sins of the world. Lord, your sacrifice on the cross was so perfect, so complete, that there is no sin that is too much. There is no sin that's too evil or too wicked. There's no amount of sin that withholds us from your grace and salvation. There is only the sin of not trusting in you as our Savior. The sin of saying to you, thank you, but no thank you. The sin of saying, I I don't believe it, therefore I don't want it. Lord, thank you for giving us free will so that those that choose to believe in you can express their love for you because it's a choice, a choice to seek after you and to try to live for you. Lord, for those of us that have not yet made that decision, we pray that you would help our hearts to be honest as we look at the evidence, help us to understand the wickedness of our own hearts that doesn't want the light to expose the sin that is there. And Lord, help us to believe in You, to put our faith in You, and to receive Your gift of salvation. Lord, for those of us who have already made that decision or who are making that decision for the first time today, Lord, would you fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit? And God, would you empower us to live for you, for your name, and for your glory so that when people look at us, they don't give us credit, but Lord, they give you credit. They can say, look at what God did with a broken, worthless person like Jared. God, you are good. We pray that you would help us to be ambassadors for you and to point others to you. And we pray that you would bless the rest of this worship time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me in worship? I don't, know, I don't know where you're at in faith. Maybe you're, you're not yet convinced. Maybe you're on the fence. Maybe you're a new believer or you've been a believer for years. But I encourage you to look at the evidence. Today was just a brief glimpse into not only the questions and theories brought up by the skeptics, that we should know how to think about and answer and be willing to talk with. As well as looking at the evidence, we just talked about a little bit of it. And so no matter where you're at, I want to encourage you with a few resources for more study. The first one, they're at the bottom of your note sheet, by the way, but the first one is a movie, The Case for Christ. It's not only entertaining, but it's encouraging for your faith. The second one is a book, The book I mentioned earlier, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. It's a fantastic book. It's my favorite book about defending the faith and why we believe what we do. Finally, there's a website, alwaysbeready.com. It has hundreds of articles on there that are written for people to read and understand who don't have PhDs, like me. I don't have a PhD. I like things that are easy to read. And by the way, the book... I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. There's an audio book, too, for those of you that don't want to read. So check it out. Know that we love you. And if you have questions, you're still wrestling, I'd love to talk with you. If you have something we can pray for you about, we're up front to pray with you. God bless you. Have a great rest of your day and have a great week.